Though it was mentioned earlier, it certainly would be fair to do so again, to at least give thought to the blessing that's ours, to assemble in the way that we are for the purpose for which, in fact, we're gathered. There are many of our brethren overseas in various places that would very much enjoy an opportunity to meet like this. And yet, as you and I come together to be encouraged, and above all else, to worship the God of heaven, it's a delight and a joy and a great privilege to be sure. You may have already noted that this evening, we'll look at a few elements of the Christian life drawn from the second chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians. So let me encourage you to be turning to that little book. Though it has five chapters, really the entirety of our lesson will be extracted from some of the thoughts found in chapter number 2. By way of introduction, let's perhaps begin with some of these observations. In fact, the book of 1 Thessalonians is a rather powerful reminder of what I've invited you to consider at the top of that slide. The book, the book we and I call the Bible, as highly as we regard it and as highly as we respect it, there are some in our world who in some ways describe it as just a book of rules. A bunch of thou shalt nots and scattered with a few thou shalts within it. And yet as you and I love the Word of God, we quickly find that it's so much more than that. It is quite frankly a book of guidance. Allowing a person to live in favor with God, his wisdom is so much greater than ours. The fact of his consideration connected with who he is so much greater than you and me. And not only that, we find in the Word of God a set of precepts that are not only worthwhile, but it also generates within us a focus, an emphasis, a priority, so that our life has that umbrella of considerations that would be beneficial. In many ways, the First Thessalonian letter highlights that to a rather gigantic degree. And so as you and I close that slide with me, may I just suggest we take a clip out of chapter 2, really the first 13 verses. And as we do that, I'd like to read that set of verses, and then we'll return and extract several lessons drawn from that, from that little grouping of passages. For yourselves, brethren, know how our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you even, as a nurse cherisheth her children." So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses. And God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe." As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. 
For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now those 13 verses have obviously put before us a number of thoughts that share before us the mindset of the apostle, Paul in this case, and also points us to the reality of the church at Thessalonica. Some of the features and characteristic attributes of it, let's reflect on some of them beginning like this. As you listen to what I read in those 13 verses, were there any overarching themes that appeared? Were there any particulars that in fact were to serve as guides? Let me offer to you these. The first one that seems to be a matter mentioned more than once in that set of verses would be an emphasis and a focus on probably what you would expect, namely the Word of God. Now that church at Thessalonica, you and I might recall, initially Paul mentioned to them in the opening three verses of the chapter, the ones we just read, he hearkened in their mind back to the scene of the establishment of that congregation. As you and I revisit the 16th chapter of Acts, you may recall on the second missionary journey that Paul, of course, initially found himself in the statement of the opening part of that slide. In that chapter, he was at Philippi. And as he himself mentioned here, they were shamefully treated there. You and I remember it well. He and Silas were cast into prison, and at midnight they were singing praises and praying. And you and I recall that a Philippian jailer obeyed the gospel sometime between midnight and dawn that day. And what an incredible beginning there was to the church at Philippi. But he was forced to leave town. And in the next chapter, Acts 17, he came to Thessalonica. Now here was a, a new place for him to come. But it was a place that was beset with a number of challenges and issues because those Jews that had stirred up some problems earlier, they made their way to Thessalonica as well. On that slide, I merely mentioned it like this. In the midst of those trials and afflictions and difficulties and challenges, you might initially think, wouldn't God have blessed them and allowed their course to be an easy one? But that was not the way it developed. Beaten in Philippi, harmed in a rather direct set of ways, and now even their arrival at Thessalonica was beset with contention. In fact, in verse 6 of that same chapter, the very ones that had turned the world upside down had now come there, and the people didn't like it. They were not friends about this Christianity business. As you go back to this chapter with me, notice then how verse 2 ends. First Thessalonians 2 verse 2. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Even in the face of much contention, Paul said we were convicted, we were dedicated, and we were given to speak the gospel of God. We didn't change the message simply because brethren didn't like it. We didn't change the message simply because there were those who weren't happy to hear it. It was the case that he said he preached that. And notice how they received it in verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, notice they received what had been preached, and that was the unadulterated 
the uncompromising gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you received it, you heard it not as the word of men. May I offer that is one of the great problems troubling our religious world of our day. Folks want to hear things not like the Word of God, but to hear what they want to hear and to hear what they would prefer because quite often we don't want to change our way of thinking. And yet Paul there commended them highly. When you received the Word of God, you heard it and received it as the Word of men. As you look about the middle of that slide before us, could we not notice verse number 4? where Paul again makes note to that congregation this truth. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. May I pause and invite us to consider the blessedness of our place? We have been put in trust with this. If the next generation is to have it, if the generation after that is to have it, it is by and large on our shoulders to ensure that we propagate it, that we live by it faithfully. Because after all, if we say one thing and do something else, they are very unlikely to have any great respect for it. But if you and I in faithfulness will uphold it, live by it, and set it forth as an example and preach it, then there shall be those, not all by any means, but those who in respect will appreciate the earnesty and diligence connected to it and we'll have some interest in it. Paul said, we preach that gospel there at Thessalonica. Look one more time at verse 4, please. It says, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God. And there again is a tremendous reminder, isn't it? Society doesn't determine what pleases God. Paul said we didn't hold up our fingers a litmus test of what sermons to preach when we came to Thessalonica. We preached those matters needful. There are times it sounds hard to all of us, doesn't it? God doesn't leave any of us out of the crosshairs of His Word. There are things you and I need to hear and things you and I may well need to change and do quite differently. Different attitudes and emphases and dispositions. And Paul said that gospel came to Thessalonica in precisely that way. And back in Acts chapter 17, thankfully weren't there brethren there who came to respect and admire that and to live by it? Near the bottom of that same slide. Isn't it then an interesting thing to be encouraged to receive the Word of God then just as they did? That kind of reception will obviously lead to changes and repentance is necessary because it's God giving the instruction. As we close that slide then, might we note this, our emphasis today must be no different. Although this was intended as an inspired description of that church in Thessalonica, isn't it true of us? Where's our focus? May we never allow the week to pass by with no emphasis upon the Word of God no consideration of its blessed presentations, the understanding of the messages contained in it. We all know our world is filled with information. We, in fact, are surrounded by it seemingly all the time. And yet that information is not equal. It is not equal to the inspired testimony of the Word of God. What's another observation of these opening verses of the chapter? That is to say, an emphasis that could be greatly beneficial to you and me 
may I ask you to note this one, which Paul highlighted as well. If I were to draw our attention, beginning in verse 3, Paul quickly reminded them of his entrance into Thessalonica. It says, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. I've invited you to note at the top of that slide the suggestion connected to the original wording of each of those ideas. For instance, that word deceit literally has to do with error. You and I know there were those going about in the first century era, coming into various towns and cities. And it's true, they didn't have the written word in completeness as you and I do. And so they depended on these spokesmen. How did you know the man was telling you the truth? How did you know that what he was saying was of God? Paul reminded them that when he and his companions came to Thessalonica, we didn't come in error. We didn't have our own message to share just so we could take advantage of you. It was not our intent to pull the wool over your eyes just so we could empty your pockets and ourselves be the bettered. Now, you and I know that there have been many, many times over the centuries where someone has made a lot of money in the name of religion at the expense of some apparently devout people. That's likely not going to change to the end of time. But Paul said, we didn't come into you that way. The next word he uses is this one. You can see it on the slide, uncleanness. We didn't come preaching a message filled with impurity. Isn't it true that, again, there are those who quite often have used the name of religion to preach what's sensual and lascivious because we all know that appeals to the fleshly side of men. Paul said, we didn't come preaching that kind of message. Thirdly, he makes mention in that same verse, guile. That does mean deceit. It has behind it the issue of deception. Paul pointed out we did not come to Thessalonica with that kind of motivation. In fact, as you'll notice next on the slide, in verse number 5, Paul turns that coin over and says it like this, For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Isn't it true that Paul was motivated by sincerity? Motivated by the genuineness connected with what is considered relative to the gospel. Is it any wonder then that that kind of life is one that's easily recognizable? This person who lives with genuineness, who does not live in deception, who doesn't say one thing and then live a different way, person who practices what he or she preaches... As you give further thought to the developments of this particular chapter, isn't it true that should be descriptive of you and me as well? Someone who's genuine, a genuine Christian, given to honesty, forthrightness, and uprightness with respect to the message that supposedly motivates us. We love the Lord, we love His Word, and do our best to live by it. Paul said that's how we came in essence to you. About the middle of that slide, I ask you to note this. You and I can see that some of that which was rather common in that day was again those who would make merchandise of others. Peter maybe had made the loudest statement concerning that in 2 Peter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. 
where he said there were those then who, in fact, were pernicious folks. And they acted in a way that, quite frankly, was deadly spiritually. And they have an interest in making merchandise of you. Well, you and I know today we have to be mindful of that. There still can be those motivated by money that way and what we might call filthy lucre. But Paul says we didn't come to you that way. As you and I strive to live that kind of a life, isn't it a constant reminder of the adverbs you read in verse 10? Look again at how Paul writes this. Ye are witnesses. You saw it day by day, and you recognize that this is how we were, and these are the adverbs he uses. How holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you. Now those adverbs, again, should be those things that characterize you and me as Christians. Holily, unblameably. I hope that as others see you and me in the way that we choose to live day by day, that they will gain a quick impression that that man, that woman, they're committed to what they believe. And the church and the Lord mean everything to them. Is it any wonder then when you and I invite someone to services when that's the kind of life we live before them? They may not agree with everything, but at least they'd have respect for the kind of person they see in us. That description that Paul used of himself and of his companions surely speaks volumes, doesn't it? As you close that slide with me, isn't it an amazing thing to reflect on the sweetness of genuine Christianity? And so far we've looked at the Word of God and we've seen the genuineness connected to how Paul described his coming to them. What's the third observation that you and I find in this set of verses? I've entitled it Mutual Exhortation. I suppose you could have selected different wording to, to present that idea, but I thought that one would do it justice. Let's note again, starting a few things in this. Paul highlighted then that though in contention, and though there was opposition, that he and his companions came into this Thessalonian region and did so for the purpose of exhortation. And it was to be a mutually understood thing. Let's develop that like this. You'll note at the top of that slide, Paul commented on several observations or characteristics of himself. And perhaps he began like this. Verse 7, We were gentle. We all understand that the Word of God has its direct presentations. And without question strongly, may I say very strongly, God minces no words with what He means. He means what He says, and He says what He means. And whether that's true in the Old Testament, it's also true in the New. And therefore, you and I read passages, and it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. But, but that's so narrow. That is so narrow. But that's what the Lord said. It's not your business or mine to make excuses for Him. It's not your business or mine to try to read into what we wish He had said. He said what He meant, and He meant what He said. In light of that, Paul says, We were gentle among you. Now, as you and I read other parts of the First Thessalonian letter and the Second Thessalonian letter, Paul could be direct. May I just ask you to note one. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 7. He pointed out to them that they had been troubled. But he said, But the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. And that's strong. We all would agree. But yet, not every message Paul preached was a hellfire and brimstone sermon. He mixed it in with gentleness. Look at this verse again. We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Think about a newborn baby. How gentle and sweet and how very careful the mother, the father, other family members, and the nurses are as they deal with and handle a newborn baby. And rightfully so. Paul says, we were gentle among you. And did you notice the verb he uses? A nurse cherisheth. A nurse sees to the necessary sustenance of the child, taking care that the food and other aspects are needful, that they are provided just as required. Paul, you see, also said that we dealt among you as gently and as kindly and as sweetly as that. But that's not the only thing mentioned in this set of verses. Notice in verse number 8, being affectionately desirous of you. Aren't you impressed with Paul's use of language? Affectionately desirous. Paul had a great deal of affection for those people. Now, he didn't come from the city of Thessalonica. That was not his hometown. That was not a place he had grown up. But yet he was affectionately desirous of them. He loved them to the point that he wanted for them that which was in their best interest. Affectionately desirous. Look at another word that he uses. Again, verse number 8. We were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Dear, D-E-A-R, that's the word that we find in the Word of God. Those people meant a lot to Paul. You're beginning to see why I thought the word mutual exhortation might be an apt description of this. Paul cared for them, and he desired that they would care for one another that way, that they would understand the nearness and the dearness of the family of God. That congregation at Thessalonica was, in fact, the kingdom of God in that location. Shouldn't it be worthy of note that in the midst of that, you notice some other words as they appear? Look at verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. As a father provides guidance, as a father provides those words of at least example and leadership, you notice Paul says, we were like a nurse on the one hand, and we were like an instructing father on the other, providing to each and every one, what the text says, that which was needful. The mutual exhortation of the family of God is a remarkable thing. We look this morning at the blessedness of elders, but we surely could quickly make note of ourselves as individual members in the body, how that we exhort, encourage, edify, and motivate one another in service. 
Well, you'll notice in that connection, Paul says, obviously, that there came a time he left Thessalonica and went to work elsewhere. In fact, in Acts 17, that very thing happened. He, in essence, was run out of town by those Jews, leaving behind the nucleus of a small congregation. Apparently, they thrived, or at least they advanced decades later, and Paul penned these letters to them. What a blessedness, and what a great thing to consider. As you close that slide with me, isn't it a remarkable thing also to remember several other verses that help us see the togetherness that's ours in the body of Christ? In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus said that when a congregation issues a matter in judgment where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm right there with you. That must be one of the sweetest notes of blessing found anywhere in that 18th chapter of the book of Matthew. In addition to that, in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, the church in Corinth was told something along that line. I would say as we close that verse, that, that particular slide before us, we could see that in these passages, Paul shared many rather personal thoughts and inspired words of wisdom relative to that church at Thessalonica. What's another observation in these opening 13 verses? I chose this one to be entitled, Applicable. Applicable. You and I know what that word means. It means that something is not just abstract, but that it is capable and ready and able to be applied. Ready to be put to use. Ready to, you see, leap into action. The Word of God is applicable. Let's build that this way. Look at verse number 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse number 12. These issues that had just been spoken and these matters that had just been noted, Paul now says that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto His kingdom and glory. So these things had been written and these things shared and these things presented for this reason, that you would walk worthy of God. That is to say, they were able to put into practice and to use directly these things that had just been noted, presented, and written. And aren't you and I thankful that the Word of God is that applicable? It is not abstractly written on the level that you need a Ph.D. in Aristotelian Greek to understand it. It is something that you and I can read, appreciate, put into practice, and make the necessary changes, and make the necessary efforts of labor and work. Paul said, these things have been presented that you might walk worthy of the kingdom. As you and I develop that a little bit more carefully, isn't it a sweet thing to notice that kingdom of which he spoke in verse 12 is the same kingdom of which you and I are a member today. You and I are brethren, obviously centuries removed from the brethren that worshipped at Thessalonica approximately 20 centuries ago. That is still remarkable to think that there were folks living in such a different place and such a different time, in such a different society, governed and motivated by a very different government, and yet they were our brethren because they worshiped the same God through the same Lord in the same church. That's true, the church at Thessalonica doesn't bear the name, the Pippin Church of Christ. 
but it was the Thessalonian Church of Christ. That was the idea surrounding it. For that reason, you might notice back in verse number 1 of chapter number 1, this description, this observation is found, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That congregation had then the blessing of God, just as you and I anticipate that we do. It's our goal for that to be the case. Is it any wonder then about the middle of that slide, could I impress each of us with the verb tenses that Paul utilized? That ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto His kingdom. They'd been called into that kingdom, and they were motivated by virtue of this inspired text to walk worthy of it. The church demands our best, doesn't it? God doesn't desire us to scrape by. He wants us, in the words of John 10, verse 10, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The abundant life in Christ, that life in which we strive and we press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3, 14. It's the kind of life you see because God gave His best to us. The only prized possession of heaven you and I, of course, strive to live our best in His sight. Close that slide with me like this. You and I notice then as we think about this issue of applicable, notice one of the last statements made in chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren. So here's a statement, Paul, to that congregation, the brethren at Thessalonica. Here's what he exhorted them. Warn them that are unruly. So those individuals that begin to walk out of step, out of love, you warn them. You try to reclaim them to the faithfulness and the directness of service to God, but not only that. You comfort the feeble-minded. You support the weak. You be patient toward all men. Easy to see a lot of applicability in that, isn't it? The issue of warning the unruly, the issue of admonishing those in that walk of life, the issue of patience toward all, and the matter of supporting those that are weak. One by one tonight, we have looked so far at the issues connected to at least some ideas to be drawn from 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 13. May we close the lesson then like this. As we have looked at the various attributes there, I fully suspect many other things might have been mentioned, but those overarching themes at least seemed clear enough. You and I, to live a faithful life in Christ, it must be a life that's Bible-based. It must be a life that is a genuine life devoted to Christ. A life, you see, that's not deceptive. In addition to that, a life that is filled with mutual exhortation for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we expect them to exhort us as well. And finally, a life that is so wonderfully applicable. We can take and put it into practice. Tonight it could be that someone in this assembly might have reached a point in life when maybe though once a faithful member of the Lord's body and one who is described by all these things tonight, maybe you have 
cease to be genuine. Your life is just a shell at this point. You're living one way, but you know you at least give mouth service to living a different way. Won't you make that right? Or better yet, allow the Lord to make that right through you. Make repentance of those things. Make confession of them. And with the Lord's strength and might and power, you can turn that kind of behavior around. And He will make of you that which He would need and want you to be. It's also true if you've never become a Christian. Why not tonight? Why not tonight? We sometimes sing a song, and that's the title. Why not tonight? The song that's been chosen tonight happens not to be that one. But it is a song that encourages and challenges and a song that offers an opportunity. And so if you would wish to come and become a member of the body of Christ in belief, in repentance, in confession, in baptism, we'd be delighted to help. We're going to sing this song and issue the Lord's invitation at this time. And if we could be of help, please let us know the way we can while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>